Rob Henderson, welcome to the pot. Thanks, Kyle. Great to be here. All right. So I want this to just be like a very informal conversation about the things that you think are the most interesting uh, that you talk about. But beforehand, you have had, I think, one of the most fascinating life stories about everyone I've interacted with. Um, can you talk a little bit about your story? Uh, yeah. Well, so right now, at the moment, I'm a, I'm a PhD student here at Cambridge uh, studying evolutionary and social psychology. Uh, and before this, I was uh, an undergrad at Yale, uh, did a degree in psychology there, too, and did some some psych research as a, as a research assistant there. But before I uh, sort of found myself in these uh, sort of prestigious, fancy universities, um, my life was a lot different. So before this, I, uh, you know, just backing way, way up, I was uh, born into poverty in, in Los Angeles. Uh, my mother was an immigrant. She uh, got into drugs shortly after um, giving birth to me. She wasn't able to care for me. Um, don't know who my father is. He left my mother and me when I was uh, a baby. And so, you know, after my mother, uh, you know, sort of succumbed to her addiction, I was taken and put into the foster care system in LA, where I bounced around different foster homes for a few years. And I was subsequently adopted uh, by this um, uh, uh, couple in Northern California uh, in a small town called Red Bluff, which is sort of this rural, uh, more blue collar town. Uh, so I was adopted by this couple and uh, they had a daughter. It was their birth daughter who became my adoptive sister. And so for a few years, I was uh, in this sort of stable uh, kind of conventional family structure. Uh, but then a couple of years later, my adoptive parents divorced and there was this um, sort of unpleasant uh, custody dispute between them. And my mother ended up getting custody of me and my adoptive father was angry at my mother for leaving him and subsequently severed ties with me as a way to basically get revenge uh, at her for leaving him. So that was pretty uh, hard on me. Um, you know, I was a kid, I didn't really have any parents growing up. And then I had this guy called dad who then sort of, you know, exited from my life. And so throughout all of this, um, I was just like sort of this angry kid, um, really didn't do well in school, didn't pay attention. Um, and there was just all of this chaos and drama going on around me that was sort of weighing me down and holding me back. Uh, there was like other family uh, tragedies uh, later on when I was in high school. And basically, I just wanted to get away from all of this. So I decided to enlist right after I graduated high school. Um, I graduated in the bottom third of my class with a 2.2 GPA. Um, just totally checked out of school by that point. Um, ended up, uh, so I yeah, ended up enlisting, mm -hmm. joined the Air Force, uh, was stationed mostly abroad, um, spent some time in Washington State, but most of my service was abroad in Europe, a uh, couple of deployments in the Middle East, spent a lot of time in Germany. And from there, I started thinking more about what I wanted to do with my life and my future and sort of started taking, uh, you know, I had like more of a serious of, seriousness of purpose, wanted to take my life more seriously. Uh, and that's when I started sort of looking into college, what, what to do next. And that's when I sort of went to Yale and GI Bill. And, you know, it's been it's been a, sort of a different and unusual just life ever since uh, my life went in a direction I never expected. Um, and so that's sort of the story in a nutshell. I'm happy to sort of talk more about any of that. Yeah, I mean, that is wild. 
And like, we've been <laughs> friends for a while. And you are, I think, one of the most interesting Twitter accounts in existence. But like a lot of people like don't, they just see sort of someone who's like went to Yale, is now getting his PhD. And they don't like most of the people surrounding you would have gone to like parents are married, um, stable family, like living in upstate New York, dad has a job, mom is staying home with them. And like their life is like easy sailing. And like, I think you much more realize the importance of these sort of social structures that others don't. And like one of the things that I find really fascinating is the decline of the family. And so partially even more so the decline of the family among poor people, while the family has the family unit has stayed relatively stable amongst elites. And we'll talk about your idea of luxury beliefs later along. Um, but I wanted to ask you specifically, like, what are the implications of the decline in the family? And more so, what are the effects of children born out of wedlock and fatherlessness? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are these are questions that uh, started to interest me, especially when I was an undergrad. Um, you know, I, I've written about this story before. I've talked about it, how uh, the moment when I realized that the uh, the family structures of the rich and the poor are are so different was uh, I was in this seminar. It's about 20 students in this Yale classroom. And the professor took this anonymous uh, survey of the class, basically asking how many of you were raised by both of your birth parents. And out of 20-something students, uh, there were only two that were not raised by both of their parents, uh, raised by single parents, step parents, whatever. Uh, it was just me and one other student. Um, and so I really you know, just quickly did the math. That's like more than 90% of my peers here had been raised in uh, an intact two-parent family. Right. And then I started thinking, well, what was my, my life like before when I was a kid, when I was in high school? You know, I had five close friends in high school and literally none of them, none of us, you know, out of the six of us, none of us were raised by both of our birth parents mm -hmm. and friends raised by grandparents or by, uh, you know, step parents, single moms, right. uh, single dad, all this stuff. Um, and so the, I think the implication of that is, I mean, one one strong implication of this, of course, is that it's not a coincidence that if you're raised by a stable two parent family that you end up going to a place like Yale. Yeah. And if you're not, then you end up going the direction of. Uh, my high school friends, which I mean, you know, a couple of them had been arrested. One of them was shot to death. I mean, just totally different life trajectories. Um, and if you look at the research on this, I mean, it's it's pretty dramatic. Um, so if you look at, for example, in 1960 in the United States, um, if you look at children who were raised by uh, both of their birth parents uh, in an intact two parent family. So for upper class Americans, it was 95%. 95% of children born into an upper class family were raised by both of their birth parents. And if you look at working class families, it was also the same. 95% of children born in working class families uh, were raised by both of their birth parents. Uh, and if you fast forward to um, by 2005, for the upper class, it had dropped to 85%. So still the vast majority, there was a slight drop from 95% to 85%. But for working class families, it dropped from 95%, which was equivalent to the upper class, to 30%. So there's this massive drop off uh, for the for the working class um, to the point where it's like a completely like a different reality. Um, to I mean, it's 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 an anomaly to find someone uh, in sort of working class or poor neighborhoods and environments, uh, kids who live with, you know, their mom and their dad. Um, and of, of course, like in terms of 
prediction as far as like what is a kid's life going to look like um you know it's interesting you know I, I think in society there's a lot of focus on on poverty you know it's like oh well the reason why kids aren't doing well is because of poverty and it's actually not single parenthood it's because the single parents don't have enough money or something like that but then if you actually look at the research um uh, poverty actually isn't a strong predictor of harmful behaviors criminal behaviors in adulthood um, likelihood of, of, you know, sort of having any kind of contact with the justice system. What seems to be the strongest predictor is family instability. Uh, and so family instability, these are things like, you know, when people respond to these, uh, these questions in these research studies, it's, you know, things like, um, uh, how frequently they relocated, mm -hmm. uh, how their parents, uh, got married or divorced or how many different partners did their parents have uh, living in the house with them when they were growing up. Uh, was the kid ever in foster care? Uh, so these kinds of questions. And the more of those you answer yes to, uh, the more likely you are to be arrested as an adult or to engage in violent behavior, break rules, all of these kinds of uh, harmful outcomes. Uh, but in contrast, um, childhood socioeconomic status has zero effect, uh, statistically mm -hmm. zero effect on any of those things. So in other words, like if, if a rich kid, so, so if a kid is born into a rich family, but it's right. also sort of disorderly and chaotic and the parents are divorced and there's all this uh, sort of disorder going around on the kid. Um, that kid is much more likely to uh, be arrested and to have all kinds of uh, destructive consequences later on in their life compared to a poor kid who's raised mm -hmm. by two parents in a stable home who's sort of knows what their life is going to be like day to day. Dude, that really is, I think, one of the most like mind blowing statistics that we don't even really consider is like, we have always thought of like the path to raising children who are successful economically is by just like making a lot of money and giving them the opportunities. And what it really turns out to be is just having two a two parent household where like your parents are loving and they care for you and you have a stable environment. That really is the key to success. And sort of like, like, what it really means to be blessed in America, what it really means is just having two parents who can be there for you. And like one of the things that I, you write, you wrote about a while ago, or maybe you mentioned it, is, is like the aspect of the community. Like there are two, there are really two aspects to what it means growing up. You've got the family, that you've got the community. And I think one of the things that um, gives people stake in their community is owning a home and having a physical stake in what's going on. And so the other aspect is like, once you have that much stake in society, you begin to self-police towards um, better results. So one of the examples was like in the 60s or 70s, I remember you had Asians in the Asian community policing internally because there, were, there was a lot of gang affiliation, a lot of gang activities. They said, we don't want this shit. Like, we're not gonna be okay with this. And they sort of like internally started policing society. And so that would not have happened if all of a sudden you didn't have people having a stake in society. And but like one of the, one of the things that like really fascinates me um, is that I think there are I'm going a little bit tangent, but I think there are more important metrics to I think a GDP in assessing the overall health of a nation. I think one of them is like gainful employment or the purchasing power of the family unit how many kids you're having, how many parents are together and sort of like additionally the deaths of despair and the factors that are like, I don't think like the S&P 500 is really the metric that we should be deciding whether our country is doing better or worse. I think you might agree. Um, yeah. Well, I actually just wrote about this in my, my latest newsletter. I mean, I, 
it, it, it bothers me like so often when I when I see like pundits and and authors and and just sort of members of the chattering class when they write about um, yeah. you know, family structure and the harmful outcomes and so on and it's always like oh well you know if a kid is raised by a single parent they're less likely to graduate college or they're less likely to uh, whatever attain a, a some some like level of of occupational success or whatever. And I always think like, I mean, okay, those things are important, but those aren't like the main metrics. It's not like the, the, the is the target for all of us to get into a top school and to get a fancy job. And that's how you know that you've made it. Like, why are those the markers of success? Yes. Um, like, why is that what we're looking at? And, and in fact, like, I, I think like often that's just overlooking or sort of like shying away from the real problems of like what what a kid's life is like in uh, sort of deprived and dysfunctional environments. Mm -hmm. You know, the kids sitting there, you know, watching whatever, watching their family argue or, or like not know what the next day is going to look like or like, you know, just having all of these sort of internal emotional problems. They're not thinking like, oh, this is really going to hurt my chance to like get a really nice job and become a lawyer. Like they're not thinking yeah. that way. They're just yeah. thinking like, <laughs> I just want like a normal, calm family life. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, just a lot how, of this is, is not. Uh, how do we go I, back? Uh, how do we go back to building the family unit? How do we like I, for example, I'm very cynical. I'm very, all I talk about are the problems, how, how everything mm. is horrible. Like, what are some, what are, like, that's my Twitter feed is how everything sucks and how I'm going to yeah. go live in the woods. But like, what are some steps that, that maybe the government could take? Like JD Vance was talking about, um, but I, he was talking about like every parent gets an additional vote for their kids or every household. There's a lot of talk about Republicans. The one thing Romney did that I enjoyed, I think was like giving tax credits or like a financial stimulus or like, so what are the things that we could start doing to better the family? Yeah. I mean, I, I, like that, the economics component, I'm, I'm always a little skeptical of it. I mean, okay. simply because like, I mean, if you look at the rates of like marriage and divorce, like during the Great Depression, for example, like during the Great Depression, the marriage rate between uh, between African-Americans was higher than white Americans today. Mm -hmm. and as you can imagine, like a black family in the Great Depression wasn't like they weren't rich, right? Like they were like the poorest yeah. you could possibly imagine. And yes. yet their marriage rates were high, the divorce rates were low and so on. And so I think this is like, you know, I don't think necessarily that like culture is a consequence of the economic structure of society or something like I think the reverse is just as likely. Um, so like, mm -hmm. I think this is, you know, at, at least as much a cultural problem as an economic one. Um, and like, how would, what are some steps we could take? Like, you know, some of the things I was thinking about, like what are public campaigns that have worked? And mm -hmm. one is um, smoking. So, you know, in the 1960s, I don't know what it was, something like 40 to 50% of Americans smoked cigarettes on a regular basis. And t today it's like, I don't know, 15% or 10%. It's, it's much lower. Right. And a, and a big part of this was like creating taboos around smoking. And there was like this big public awareness campaign of like billboards and ads and TV and whatever of right. like, here's how many people die of smoking. Here's all the problems with secondhand smoke and so on. And I wondered if it would be worth like trying something like this for family. I mean, mm -hmm. there are different ways you could do it, but one could be like like a billboard saying, you know, like Public a, a shame kid. is a very powerful thing. <laughs> well, it doesn't necessarily have to be shame, but it could be something like, you know, a kid, a kid raised in a two parent family uh, is, you know, this much less likely to suffer from depression later or this much more likely. I mean, if we're going to talk, you know, education, they're more likely to graduate college or whatever, like whatever the the uh, metric of interest happens to be, you can say that like, you know, a, a kids raised in this kind of environment tend to do better mm -hmm. um, instead of like, you know, I mean, I, I sometimes see these ads for like college, for example, like, oh, if you go to college and you're, you're going to make a million dollars more in your lifetime compared to not going to college. 
I mean, that's fine if we, you know, whatever. It just seems like which is a lie, uh, which is a very cherry picked. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It is a cherry, and it over, yeah, overlooks a lot of the nuances or, or, or sort of glosses over them. But we could have something like this for family, um, you know, if, uh, whatever, two parent family, or, or even like the success mm -hmm. sequence, which you might have encountered, or some of the listeners might have. Um, no. I think it's been promoted by AEI or like some of some of the scholars at, at one of these think tanks. Uh, the success sequence is basically um, if you want to avoid poverty. Um, what is it? It's um, oh, like don't have kids before marriage. Go yeah, graduate, graduate high, school. high school and get a full time job. You do yeah. those three things, then you're not going to be poor. Um, but you could also have some kind of success sequence for like raising happy, healthy kids. Mm -hmm. And one of them might be like get married, like stay together the whole time, don't cheat on your spouse. Well, like, I think you, I think, yeah. I think you, like this might be uncomfortable. I think you have to implement some sort of shaming. Where like the reason why people stayed together in bad marriages wasn't mm -hmm. because they were less hellish than the types that are today, or they might have been even more hellish, was because A, there was like no ability to divorce, and B, if you did divorce, like you, it was like a social pariah, like you were shamed, like that was mm. like something terrible to do. And the reason why I think these campaigns for smoking work is because we put so much shame on smokers. And yeah. so like they got viewed as social pariahs. And we need to bring back, if we're going to fix, I think, the family, and I'm still unsure about the economic aspects of all, like one of the things we tried to do, which was, uh, you know, basically, like if you were a single parent or a single mother, you got money from the government. What that incentivized, though, is just more single parenthood. So it's like a very tricky situation to make sure that your incentive are actually aligned. But if we're going to restore, like we should make it a lot harder. Like if we're going to actually fix this, one of the things we okay, like, I'm still unsure on the fact that like no fault divorces. And so yeah. like, or is that something that we should, we should actually have if we're trying to, to build back the family unit. Um, yeah. And we should be like, if we're going to, if we're serious about fixing this, the really like the big thing that corrects human action, I think you talk about this a little bit is like shaming is to make sure you're not act like you're not ostracized from the group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. I, I think like, you could actually, you could get divorced, you know, mm -hmm. back in the day. Um, but what, one thing that, that prevented it was this sort of taboo around it. Uh, right. There was this sort of, uh, you know, your reputation would take a hit if you, or you'd, you were seen as a failure or something if you got divorced or if you had a kid yeah. out of wedlock. And yeah, I think, yeah, there, there has to be some kind of way, I think, to, to reintroduce that. I mean, like you said, it's tricky, like, you know, especially because people are so reluctant to put blame on anyone. Mm -hmm. um, but adults, I mean, if you're an adult, you should, I mean, bear some blame for your actions, right? Like you're responsible for what you do. I mean, regardless of your circumstances or your economic, whatever, like everyone should bear some responsibility for, for their act. And especially when they when they affect children, it's it's weird because like we're reluctant to blame parents when really like the, the people who are most affected by what they do are the kids. Right. Um, and so by by neglecting uh, or, or sort of like refusing to blame adults, mm -hmm. children. End children. Up, yeah. So and, like, and this is like one of those things where like, you know, a lot of people, you know, they, they try to separate um sort of social versus economic conservatism and liberal li yeah mm -hmm. liberalism where they'll say like you know I'm, I'm socially liberal but fiscally conservative whatever but I, I think like that's it's almost like in practice impossible to be right because if you are socially liberal and laissez-faire in terms <laughs> of like judgment and action and people can do whatever they want 
the outcome of that, the consequence of that, are people are going to do things that are going to cost you money. Yes. Right. Whether it's child, you know, children born out of wedlock, uh, uh, pe- more people breaking the law, more people not caring about what others think of them. Um, they're just going to do more things that, in the long term, are going to take money out of your pocketbook. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you are, say, you're more socially conservative and you uphold certain principles and certain taboos around behavior and standards and so on then fewer people are going to do things that will cost you money. And so in a way, like you can't have it both ways. You can't say like, you know, people can do whatever they want, but I'm not going to pay for it. In practice, right. in an actual society, it doesn't actually work that way. Which so. is which is my which is basically the crux of my feud with libertarians as of recently. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like like they're like I someone had this very interesting tweet where the anarchists um, like so libertarians are correct and they just want the government to leave them alone. Anarchists are correct that the government will never leave you alone. And I think that this is the same way socially where you like you're like, I don't want anyone to affect me. I want to go live into the woods. And this is kind of my gripe with also homeschooling. It's like, great, you're going to homeschool your kids. 18 years. Wonderful. You send them into the real world. The world is still hell. Right. Like you, all you did was delayed 18 years and made your children's situation much worse when you could have done something. So the actions of others has an effect of, on, on your children, on your future. And so you should put an interest in it. And so we should have an interest in what's going on around you. And so like, well, I'll just sit back and there's, you know, people doing drugs on the subway and, and injecting themselves. Like that doesn't, it's not, it doesn't affect me. It's like, well, no, it kind of does because yeah. A, you're paying for the services. B, that's your city and C, it affects your children. And yeah. so it, it's just like not a logical thing like to think of mm-hmm. um, yeah there's a lot of inconsistencies there and some wishful thinking going on too i mean if you're if you're socially liberal and or yeah yeah whatever social liberal and economically liberal then i guess you could sort of make an argument for that where like people can do whatever they want and i'm willing to pay for it but like right you if know you're, like, if you're like if you're like fiscally conservative but socially liberal it's like you're not actually fiscally conservative then because like things right. are moving left and then you're yeah. paying for them um yeah. That's okay, right. well, yeah. let's switch topics to um, you joined the military right out of high school. And so you really transitioned from um, a, like a very loose social hierarchy, like a very like things are fluid, things are crazy to like a very rigid social hierarchy. Can you talk a little bit about how that transition went? Uh, yeah, I mean, my, my bigger question me, in that sense is like there's yeah. always been this this four three year period of maturity between 18 to 22 in Israel. There's a mandatory service in the U.S. that might be college, and in some instances, the military. Like, how did that shape you? How does that shape yeah, people? It was. I mean, it was good for me. So, I mean, in my case, you know, I came from just totally dysfunctional, crazy background, like you said, um, and I, I needed some of that structure uh, sort of imposed on me. I, I had too much freedom. Uh, as a kid and as a teenager, and I actually needed someone to sort of uh, create constraints and and I needed to be confined to some degree. And, and in many ways, the military is kind of like a prison. I mean, basic training is basically prison. It's sort of like a father uh, figure. It's like this sort yeah. of like bearing father figure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in the sense that like there are, there are very sort of high standards that you're uh, sort of uh, required to, to adhere to and so on. And I mean, for me, like, a lot of it was um, just like having my choices stripped from me. I mean, if I had complete freedom at 17 or 18 and I hadn't joined the military, my life would have taken a completely different direction. But the fact that like I had this sort of like powerful uh, machine preventing me from doing anything, 
uh, that, that could potentially sort of uh, hurt myself or hurt other people. That was good for me, like you said, for a few years. Yeah. Uh, and there was that sort of maturation phase. Um, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, well, you know, I joined the military and it changed my life and it taught me discipline and camaraderie and all this stuff. And, and that's all true. Like I, I benefited a lot in those ways. But uh, a, a big part of my uh, development and why the military helped me was simply uh, the maturity. Like yeah. just like, I mean, if you had stuck me in a barrel for six years and said like, you're not allowed to go anywhere until you're you know, 23. Um, that would have helped me too, right? Just like, yeah. don't do anything for this period of time and fast forward through like the worst period of a young man's life. Like, right. you know, from like the onset of puberty to like early twenties are like, you know, a little shaky for a lot of guys, uh, you know, myself included. Yeah. It's like, um, it's, it's like a chaotic, like six year period of like emotions and, and hormones. And like, you don't know what's happening. And especially yeah. like in this world, like you don't even know what the rules are. Sorry. Continue. Oh, no, no. I mean, I, I saw this funny tweet. It was something like a uh, testosterone is the crystal meth of human hormones. And that's so true, right? Like that period from like, I mean, a 10 year, like the difference between like a 10 year old boy and a 13 year old boy He's is massive. like, yeah. you know, different, you know, physically different, but also like the, the way that they think, like, right. you know, just completely, you're a different human being, right? You get this massive dose of this hormone and it completely changes you. Um, and so, yeah, the, the military is a good environment for, for a lot of young guys, I think, um, for, for all the reasons I just said. And then, you know, it also gives, gave me a lot of time anyway to reflect on um, sort of what direction I wanted to go, sort mm -hmm. of thinking more about my own life. And I think, it, it, you know, there's, there's also the, another benefit of um, sort of like getting along with different kinds of people from different backgrounds. You sort of right. learn more about the world, about the country. And, you know, I, I was talking with a friend about this recently. Um, it's just like how how different the military is from college mm -hmm. in terms of like how people think about goals. Like like in college, it's every every man or every person for themselves. Right. You know, everyone's like, you know, gunning for the internship or law school or whatever. Like yeah. they're sort of very self-oriented. What do I want to do? What, what you know, how do I make my resume look better? But in, in the military, it's sort of it's about the unit. It's about the team. It's about everyone else. And you sort of rise or fall together. I mean, that's something you learn like yeah. basic training. It's like if, if one person on the team fails, then that means everyone failed. Mm -hmm. um, and so to sort of uh, and like one benefit of that or one side effect of it anyway, is that, um, you know, people are more open and honest with one another. Like there wasn't this like I, I noticed in college, there was just this we all of these weird taboos, the sort of right. whatever the cancel culture and all this stuff. Like it just didn't really exist yeah, in the military. I, 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 wasn't like that. Yeah. yeah. And so like I was reading a few of your substack, and one thing you really mentioned was how the the kind of insults in the military were different than the insulting in college, where the insults in college were really sort of like the the, the basically the archetypal masculine energy versus ma archetypal feminine energy were like in in the military you guys are insulting each other but you're really building and shit testing each other up and colleges yeah, well, it's to like build yeah. people down and to separate yourselves from intergroup and outgroups yeah yeah well in the, so in the military i mean when you insult other people it's it's a form of bonding basically right. and i think like a lot of a lot of like especially a lot of all male groups do like sports teams do yeah. this too like guys give each other a lot of shit in sports i mean it's the same thing in the military like you yes. just get a, a group of young guys together they trash talk and it's sort of a way to build a build bonds mm -hmm. but i noticed like in college too like they're you know, with uh with insults and with sort of um undercutting people it wasn't about bonding. It was really about like, well, one, it was about sort of damaging the other person's mm -hmm. reputation or whatever their image. 
but it was also like about showing what team you were on. Yeah. You know, like if I, if you, oh, you're a, you know, you're, you're a p- political conservative or you believe this or you don't support this movement or whatever. And I'm going to call you out for that. And, you know, a lot of like finger snaps, you know, college students are finger yeah, snapping as like a way to show approval. Yeah. Uh, and that's what they're, they're looking for. And, and so everyone is terrified of being the target mm-hmm. of that, right? Like no one wants to be the target of everyone else finger snapping someone else's insult at you. Why is that? Um, Why are we all deathly afraid of, of like one of the things is like what makes us like sort of seek social approval and like also like what's, what's with our monkey brain that we're so terrified of deviating from the norm? Yeah, I mean, so if you look back at through like evolutionary history, and, and this has been documented in a lot of research too, that um, essentially uh, ostracism was nearly the equivalent of death. Um, you know, if you drop a human off, like even a hunter-gatherer with experience living um, in mm-hmm. that kind of environment, if you leave them alone, they'll die right pretty quickly. You need to have the human community. We we evolved to basically survive together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were very sensitive to sort of the judgments and, sens- and sensitive to the criticisms of others. Um, and even if you think about it this way, you know, a lot of perhaps a lot of early humans weren't uh, sensitive to criticism of others and they just did whatever they wanted, didn't care. Uh, but those aren't those aren't our ancestors because they right. ever, either ended up getting killed or ostracized. Um, and in fact, like there's some fascinating research from um, Richard Rangham, who's an anthropologist, mm-hmm. who's written about um, basically uh, how essentially the, the death penalty, like the, the death penalty changed the course of human history. Uh, not like the legal code of the death penalty, but among hunter gatherers, mm-hmm. if there was a problematic male who, um, you know, sort of flaunted the rules and, and took took more food than they should have had or like slept with someone's wife and they were just like a total uh whatever a psychopathic kind of male mm-hmm. uh the other males often what happens is they would conspire they would sort of whisper with one another and say like we're going to kill this guy uh and so over time gradually you have fewer and fewer of those types of people and more and more types of people who care about what mm-hmm. other people think and yeah i mean we're extremely sensitive to this uh i mean we can see it play out you know, for example on social media we see a lot of it um and so, like, the, the what is it? Um, I've seen this before that, like, besides sort of our physical health, mm-hmm. the number one thing that people care the most about is their moral reputation. Mm-hmm. Uh, how the sort of image in the eyes of others that is, uh, that's, you know, only comes only second to our physical health. But I would argue in some cases, people are even willing to sacrifice physical health uh, to fit in with the group. Uh, that's how important it can be. Yeah. And it's also like the other interesting thing is we kind of use social consensus as like a brain circuit versus something is true or false. And I saw this in how about a year ago, there were like anonymous right-wing adjacent accounts that were circulating the lab leak hypothesis, but the mainstream media immediately came out against it as sort of like, well, these, these, these people must be like those, these are bad people. And so that they, like the fact that they think this must mean it's wrong. And yeah. so there are also documents like people even like people high up thought it was true, but they couldn't admit it. And so it took like this wave of, let's say, like Maddie Iglesias tweeting about it. And so like all these people like slowly trickling it down and be like, whoa, did you John guys? Stewart. 
Did you guys hear about this thing? Whoa. Um, but one of these. No, I saw that play out, man. That was so interesting. Like early on, you know, early on in the pandemic, like February, a lot of uh, conservative friends of mine were sort of like, you know, these on signal or these whisper networks of like, something's coming in from China, some weird shit's going on in Italy. Like, what's going on? And like, you know, friends telling me to buy masks or like stock up on water or whatever. And I'm like, is this really going to be serious? And, you know, then I open up the New York Times and it's, whatever nancy pelosi saying you know hug a hug a chinese person it's all right. gonna be fine <laughs> she and tweeted was, that she actually did <laughs> yeah i remember just like i just didn't know like you know what, what was really going on here but I, you know, I ended up trusting my friends more than more than a lot of the stuff coming out of mainstream media uh and then yeah we're seeing this that the the source of the information is more important or at least as important as the content of the information itself Yes. Uh, and it's, you know, so, so there's this, there's this, uh, author, uh, Chuck Klosterman, he, he had this funny line. It was, uh, if you ever want to ruin a dinner party, uh, tell, tell everyone or, or remind everyone that Hitler was a vegetarian uh, <laughs> and people just lose their minds. Right. Because Hitler was a, he was a, a devout animal rights activist. He passed all of these laws protecting human ri- or animal rights and all this stuff. And he, he himself, you know, abstained from eating meat. And, and so like the, the reason why that joke is funny is because people, people can't hold in their mind that someone so evil could also, yeah. you know, uh, adhere to this practice that, that a lot of, you know, sort of educated, sophisticated people agree with, which is, right. you know, vegetarianism. Right, right. <laughs> and so it's, it's yeah, it's an interesting quirk, right, of, of human psychology. Yeah. And so if I want to go back quickly, and this is one thing before we move on. You write a lot about how, and this, you were the first person who brought this up to me. And I think I, I heard this from Peterson more recently and that the military... 10% of the applicants, they have found no utility above their cost to bring in. So 10% of the U.S. population, something of that sort, they have found that, like, there is no viable benefit for bringing you on board. They're, like, above the cost, which is insane thinking about how how desperately they want candidates. And so hmm. I think the right and the left both have misconceptions about this. The right thinks that if everyone just pulls themselves up by their bootstraps – that they can succeed. And the left thinks that if we simply trained everyone, and this is where learn to code comes in, if we simply retrain these truckers to learn to code, they could be successful. I think these are both wrong. And so, like, what do we do with 10% of the U.S. population that even the military was like, we don't know what we we could successfully do with you? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so I've and I've I've seen Peterson talk about this too. I mean, the idea there basically is that you know the military administers the standardized test, very similar to the SAT, similar to an IQ test. Um, basically, uh, they have a threshold there of a standard where, like, if you score below the thirty third percentile, mm-hmm. um, they don't allow you to enter the military. Roughly speaking, it's around the thirtieth. You know, different branches have different standards, but essentially, they slice off the bottom third of test takers. Right, so you have below, I think, an eighty five IQ, which is ten percent of the U.S. population. I think. Yeah, some, something like that. Yeah, ten yeah. percent of the population. Yeah, and so, um, you know, what 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 do you? Do? I actually knew a kid like this. Funny enough, uh, in my high school, uh, he was uh, he was an athletic guy. You know, he's very motivated and driven, but he could not pass the the ASVAB, the military mm-hmm. entrance exam. Uh, so he failed it once. The recruiter gave him like a bunch of free testing material, gave him some books, like sort of uh, helped him through it. Uh, and the kid took the test again six months later and got the exact same score and couldn't mm-hmm. join. And I think that's an example maybe of what you're getting at here is like, you know, there are some people who, you know, whatever, whatever the right might say about like, just work hard, study hard, pull yourself up like anyone can make it. 
it's not necessarily true, but yeah. so what do we, you know, what do we do? I mean, this is why I think like, again, like, you know, why I think the, the education and credentials and money are like misguided aims for a good mm-hmm. society is like, okay, so these 10% of people aren't going to be uh, sort of luminaries and they're not going to whatever, like do all of these great, yeah. amazing things in their careers. But there are other forms of value in human life, right? Yeah. Like, you know, sort of taking care of people, whatever, uh, building relationships. Arthur Brooks has his um, the four sort of pillars, like four, of, the of four pillars, right? Mm-hmm. And and of course, like you know, one of them was career, but then the other three, you know, it's like you know, it was a career, faith, family. And uh, the fourth one escapes community or something like that. Mm-hmm. But basically only one of them is about uh, career, occupational success, whatever. The other three are really about your relationships. Yeah. And I think like pretty much anyone, you know, regardless of their innate abilities can sort of contribute in some way to communities, to relationships, to sort of living a good life in that way. Uh, but because our elites uh, sort of got to their positions through mm-hmm. Uh, credentials through money through those kinds of things like those are the things that they focus on and not so much uh, on relationships and communities so there are other other ways you know yeah again through like churches uh, religious organizations those kinds of things also this um, is a this okay. is a recent conception like throughout the entire period of human history we didn't really define like def- like we didn't get meaning from our jobs we got meaning from our families from our children right like like single pa- like sorry like having like the nuclear family that we see in America is not a natural thing. It used to be multi-generational housing. And so all these ideas that are recent are like, like we haven't lived like this for like most of human history. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, yeah, that we put so much stock, like the, the most important piece of our identities uh, and I'm speaking mostly about like the upper middle class and the upper class is their like where they went to college, where they work, what their resume right, looks like, right. like their their latest LinkedIn update or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that's who they are. Uh, and you know when people say like you know what do you do or tell me about yourself, you know people right, don't talk about their families. The first question in DC is not like how many kids do you have? It's where do you work? <laughs> it's always and maybe you've experienced that too, and probably some of your circles. The first question you get asked is what do you do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when people, you know, implicitly, like people already know, like, what do you do means like, what do you do for work? Not yeah. what do you do for your family or your community or what like sort of uh, organizations are you a part of that promote those things? It's really yeah. about like, how do you make money? Yeah. Um, what can you do for me is, is sort of really what they're asking. <laughs> my new answer, I'll be in DC. This I've done this. This is my new thing. People will be like, what do you do? And my answer is I ship post on the internet. <laughs> that's yeah it. and so yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i mean do people know though don't know they already know, they like, know oh, that just means you're an influencer. which is which is somewhat like a, a counter signal which is like something you've also read about which is fascinating how like you'll also see the ceo the ceo doesn't wear a suit he wears a hoodie because he can and yeah. so i can say i'm a ship poster and not have to like flaunt what i do yeah. Well, you can get away with it, right? Yeah. You have a big account and you're yeah, pretty well. Yeah, I guess you if you're uh, sort of an anon account with like 19 followers, right. you know, you you can't really get away with that. I, I want to talk one more time. I want to talk I want to quickly get back to um standardized testing and mm-hmm. the effects of like you mentioned this somewhat, but like how SATs let's start. Like why colleges are getting rid of the SATs and let me say my theory. I think all of a sudden colleges under the guise of generosity and kindness and compassion are moving the SATs. And I think this hurts 
for example, poor people who can test well, um, but aren't able to like sort of like get a story around, like uh, aren't able to sort of like craft a narrative. And what it does is it helps like really rich kids get in. Um, and the other aspect is, is when you, when you get more people applying all of a sudden, um, only kids with high SAT scores will submit. And so the SAT rankings go up. But I want you to base to talk about the effects of poverty and SATs and can you game this, can you not? Because there's a lot of like BS surrounding SATs. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's crazy. Like just what the sort of conventional wisdom is among educated people versus like when you actually look at the research, what it, you know, what it really shows. And, you know, for example, a, a, you know, a big uh, reason I've heard for why we should eliminate the SAT is, oh, because like rich people can pay for coaching. You know, they hire these private tutors and that's how these rich kids, you know, that's why they actually do better on the test. It's, it's not a, it's not a test of ability. It's a, it's a wealth test I've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not true at all. I mean, if you actually look at the research on outcomes of SAT coaching, it's it's uh, abysmal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I basically like the, the the effects of coaching. It raises it something like seven to ten points, which is equivalent to getting one or two extra answers correct on the yeah. SAT. Basically, nothing. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, I've seen like one one re- researcher basically said it was too too trivial to be important in any way. Um, a very few, uh, a small number of people are able to benefit in in a tremendous way from coaching. But these people, you know, they tend to be uh, sort of like already immigrants smart. or people. Yeah. They're already they're already smart, but they just like need a little bit of time to brush up on certain things or whatever. But by right. and large, coaching doesn't do much. Um, uh, the other thing is, there was recently a piece of research that came out on. Um, they basically compared uh, the correlation between family uh, socioeconomic status and the SAT and family mm-hmm. socioeconomic status on uh, essays, on the personal statements, college essays that people use. And family uh, income was a much stronger, uh, basically it was much more strongly correlated with the essays than with yeah. the SAT, <laughs> right? And so basically when you eliminate the SAT, now you're saying like, oh, now we're going to focus on essays and who the person really is. And, it's like, you know, it's going to be more holistic, but really that, that's the wealth test, right? Because, it's like, maybe, right. maybe the SATs are bad. I get it. Maybe like, I don't, I think they're actually good. Um, but the alternative is even worse for poor people. Right. So, right, because I mean, like they, they did the textual analysis and they basically said like, you know, kids from rich families know how to craft an essay in the right way to appeal to admissions officers. So mm-hmm. Oftentimes they don't even write the essay, which yeah. blew my mind that that can happen. Yeah, you, you drop can hire... like three grand, four grand, five grand, you pay some flunked yeah. out English lit major from, you yeah. know, Oberlin to write it for you. Yeah, and so, yeah, absolutely. And so that's, uh, yeah, it's just insane to me because like my own, you know, the way that I was able to sort of find my way into higher ed, and, and I've heard this from other people too, is through standardized testing where mm-hmm. yeah. there are a bunch of kids who do really bad in school because of their family circumstances, perhaps to some degree due to economic deprivation or whatever, but they just right. weren't able to do well in school. But then they take a test and they take it seriously. They, once they realize the magnitude of you know what that test means, they take it seriously, they do well on right. it. And then that opens all kinds of doors for them. So I don't know why we're shutting doors, right? Like, why would you shut more opportunities off rather than keep them open and available for uh, kids who who aren't doing so well? And and I I think you're right. I think a lot of it is sort of, um, you know, it's under the guise of kindness, but a lot of it is motivated by by maybe more uh, sort of nefarious uh, uh, strategies here. Definitely, definitely. And uh, one of the things I want to talk to you about is we, we, we talked about like meaning should be how you define your life. And that should be the goal, not how much money you make and what job you get. 
like you you went to this Ivy League, you went to Yale, and so like the people you went to school with who optimized for these high prestige careers, um, who optimized for really like making a lot of money, not really spending that, not really start a family, like focusing on those things. Like, do you, like, what have you noticed from them? Like, do you think they're happy? Like given, given where they are in life, do you think they're happy? Dude, like, the status seeking actually makes makes us happier. No, it doesn't. No. I mean, my, the short answer is no. I mean, I saw all kinds of very, uh, you know, I, I, I was there as like almost like this anthropologist or like this alien or something like completely different world from where I came from. Uh, and so like, I was just sort of sitting back and watching And of course, like I came at a very strange time, which was like, you know, a bunch of campus protests and stuff were going on. And mm-hmm. I didn't understand any of it. I didn't understand the language of social justice or like all of this stuff. Um, right. you know, I, I, I saw things like, um, you know, I, I see students say, uh, you know, you know, and investment banks and consultancies, those are just like emblems of capitalist oppression. And like they they invest or like they do work with like all of these um, oil companies or with mm-hmm. ICE or like all of these, you know, evil places or whatever. And so they'd say like, you shouldn't work here. And then like later on, I would discover that those very same people were at recruitment fairs for Goldman Sachs or mm-hmm. like they got an internship at McKinsey. Or so my interpretation, like over over um, a period of months, you know, as I start to get to learn these people, learn about these people more, uh, I think a lot of that was basically undercutting their rivals, right? So if they can convince me that these banks mm-hmm. are evil and I shouldn't work for them, that's one less competitor right. in their quest to to get a, a job as an analyst or whatever, right? Yeah. Like that's just one less person they have to worry about. Um, I saw a lot of this sort of, um, you know, this trickery going on, and and I don't think they're happy. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I keep in touch with a lot of uh, a lot of my friends and a lot of people I graduated with, and. No man, they're like they're burned out. A lot of them are like anxious or depressed or like it's always the next thing, right? Like, right. well, I'm gonna leave my job at Bain, but I got this, you know, thing at this PE firm, and that's you know, that's gonna be so much better. Mm-hmm. And I know people who did do that, that very same step. It's funny, the people tell me that that's gonna make them happy, but I know people who have done that and they're not happier. Um and it's sort of this never-ending sort of hamster wheel of, of yeah. uh, status, prestige, getting a job at these fancy places. Um, it's really uh, mind-boggling for me because, like, I thought that, you know, it, I was I was very innocent, right? I was kind of naive. I thought, like, once you get into Yale, like, that's sort of like now you're in. Like, now you don't have to freak out so much about your social position or your right. status or where you're going to work. Like, you've already sort of, like, you, you're no one ever, you've like, made goes it. into a top school and then and now they're homeless or something. It's very like hard that. to fail out. They make it right. extremely hard to fail out. And and so like no matter what you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. But no, there's all there's a ton of anxiety. In fact, I've I've seen studies showing that there's actually more anxiety from uh, kids from upper middle class families than from poorer families. Uh, more more drug use, more alcohol abuse, uh, more anxiety, more depression. Uh, and I think a lot of it is just sort of these these misguided expectations of of what your life is going to be like. There's research, for example, showing that education has no effect on happiness. Wow. Um, it does have an effect and, on Tinder dates. We'll get to that later. <laughs> well, yeah, we can talk about that. <laughs> but basically, the, the, the finding for education is um, uh, it shifts your expectations and the outcomes rarely match them. And so, for example, um, you know, suppose I think like, well, once I get this degree, then mm-hmm. I'm going to get this job and I'm going to make this kind of money and I'm going to have more leisure time. And I have this picture in my mind of what, it, what my life is going to be like. When I get the degree and I get the degree and very rarely does your life actually match the picture you have in your mind. And because of that mismatch between your expectation and your outcome, uh, education ha- en- ends up in the long term having zero effect on, on people's happiness. 
Um, which to me is like, I mean, this is kind of like, it, it, we all believe this though. We all think like, well, I'm not happy now, but once I get into law school or once I right. do this or get, get this job and, um, often it has a very small effect lasting about three to six months. It gives you like a little like hedonic boost. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then it, it ends up fading away after a couple of months. How so much of the this... things that do last are, are other things, family relationships. Those, those are actually things that predict long-term happiness and, and satisfaction. How much of this sort of like onto the next thing mentality that we have in the West now is from social, like sort of like, like social structures we've developed or human biology. Like, is this a thing that we are inclined to do constantly is to always move on to the next thing? Well, it's it's a little of both. But okay. uh, from the biological aspect, I mean, you know, there's you know, re research from uh, um, Randolph Nessie, for example, he's an evolutionary psychiatrist. He's written about how we didn't evolve. Humans didn't evolve to uh, to be happy. We evolved to be effective. We uh, evolved to do things that that basically pass on our, our genes, our, our, uh, have to have children, to have offspring. And so we'll do things that maybe make us unhappy, but they also, uh, in the long term, can enhance our reproductive success, which is kind of funny what you just said about Tinder, right? So yeah. like, maybe law school isn't going to make me happy, but it will make me a more attractive uh, dating partner or romantic partner. Yeah. And so even though I'm miserable, at least I can put, you know, law school on my Tinder app and get more dates. And, and my body thinks that, you know, when I hook up with these strangers who are on birth control and I'm using protection, but your body thinks that you're having children when you, you know, when you have sex. Right. So, you know, like uh, there, there are all these kinds of... Uh, evolutionary forces at play mm -hmm. but i also think like the way that elite culture is set up um it, it sort of like cultivates and exaggerates that that yeah. dependency. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, before we get to how you can improve your tinder swiping i know you're in a relationship before you talk about how our <laughs> listeners can improve their dating and i want to talk about um luxury beliefs you write about an interesting paradox with affluent college students and their luxury beliefs noting how affluent elites signal high class status by demonstrating that they engage in leisure and that this isn't a new phenomenon and that elites have long gatekept culture when something goes mainstream and that it's no longer on vogue in one of your pieces you kind of highlight how like signaling leisure is staying up to date with latest social justice trends and language um, and sort of the world we're living right now is, is the mix between this sort of Marxist ideology and postmodernism move together and um, like a constantly like hamster wheel of having to keep up. So you really coined this word of luxury beliefs better than I um, can describe it. Can you talk about a little bit about how these luxury beliefs and sort of the elite signaling have ultimately led to like a negative effect amongst um people who actually inscribe and take those beliefs in. Yeah, well, so the luxury beliefs idea, well, okay, so so it came about when I was when I was at Yale, um, sort of, well, first for my observation, just from everything that I was seeing, and then also for, from my reading, I, I was reading sociology, biology, like all of this, this interesting research, mm -hmm. um, and basically, you know, research from Thorsten Veblen, Pierre Bordeaux, like all of these sort of old school economists and sociologists and, um, and psychology and so on. But basically, uh, the elites throughout history have always uh, signaled their status in some way. In the past, it used to be with material goods, with luxury goods. Yeah. Um, 
Veblen makes this point, you know, that uh, the kind of clothes you wear, if you wear like a pocket watch and a monocle and you're wearing a tuxedo or an evening gown, like, you know, 100 years ago, if you um, sort of walked around the streets of New York, just just through people's clothing, you could tell who was rich and who was poor. Yeah, that's the rich guy. That's the poor guy. Um, whereas today you can't really do that. If you walk around Manhattan, you know, some, some rich guys look like they're homeless the way they dress, right? Like you can't always tell like yeah. who's rich and who's poor, maybe more actually San Francisco, uh, <laughs> but like, you know, like you, you can't always tell this, but, and so like uh, now that there's uh, now it's kind of de- declasse to, to signal status through your, your appearance, through your, your, your clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least still want to show their position in society. And so my claim is that now they're doing with luxury beliefs, having like sort of unusual or strange um, social opinions uh, that that a person who wasn't educated in elite university who doesn't run in elite circles would ever believe in. The most recent example of this would be um, defunding the police. Mm-hmm. So I just shared this, uh, uh, this survey, I think it was from YouGov. Uh, and the results of it, I mean, it was fascinating. They broke it down by by income category. Uh, and the, I mean, the group that was most in support of defunding the police are people who are in more than $100,000 a year, the highest income category on the survey. Um, and like that to me is unreal because like rich people will pay none of the cost, right? My, mm-hmm. my definition of luxury beliefs are ideas yeah. and opinions that confer status on the upper class while inflicting costs on the lower class. And this is the perfect example because poor people actually don't want to defund the police yes. as evidenced by the research. They don't want to defund the police. And if the police are defunded, they will be the ones bearing the brunt of that, the cost of that. Whereas if you're a member of the upper class and you say like, I want to, you're saying like, I want to defund the police and whatever the outcome is, I won't be affected by any of it because you're sort of uh, sealed off from the consequences of your own uh, opinions, of your own luxury beliefs. Um, And so, uh, yeah, we we see this, I mean, primarily most of it comes out of, I think a lot of it comes out of uh, top tier institutions, elite universities. I had never encountered any, I mean, I, I actually saw like in a weird way how the sausage was made, like the things that were being talked about and discussed in the fall of 2015 yeah. uh, are now like mainstream discourse in the New York Times wow. and so on. And so like I saw like where it originated and then five years later, that is like what what is required. So sort of the entry, like the table stakes for entering the upper middle class. Now you have to believe those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're and constantly they, yeah. changing and shifting, which is the tough part. Where, like if you need to spend hours on hours on hours listening to all these podcasts and, 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 and kind of like reading Robin DiAngelo's book right. and yeah, listening, yeah, listen, right, whatever, listening to the right people, reading the right things. Um, keep, it, it was funny. Like I, I remember having these awkward moments and I didn't understand them at the time it was happening, but like keeping up with the news is a big one. Like I didn't care about the news when I was growing up, like my family, we subscribed to the local newspaper, but like politics and news was not a big part of our lives. And yeah. I don't think it's a big part of most um, sort of yes. working class families' lives. You don't have time. Right, because you have you have things to do, you have real problems to worry about, you have bills mm-hmm. to pay. But I remember I I talked to like other students or grad students or whatever uh, at Yale, and they would ask me something like, "Oh, did you see? You know, so and so did this. This is on the front page of the New York Times." And I would say like, "Oh no, I didn't." You know, and to me like it, it wasn't. A, <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, did, I missed that. I didn't know about that. And they would look at me like, "What? You didn't know?" And and it wasn't until later I realized like, "Oh, part of like being in this group is like." You know, knowing what's trending right now, what's what what's uh, the latest, you know, what, what's the latest op-ed in the Times right. or, you know, this big piece in the Atlantic that so-and-so wrote. Like, you have to sort of keep up with those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, if you don't have the kind of job where you 
could screw around and, you know, look at Twitter all day and like, you know, spend half an afternoon reading uh, articles in the Atlantic or whatever. Like you just can't, you, you can't keep up with that stuff, right? Like that right. is very much a, a, a sort of aspect of elite culture. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the, the, <laughs> one of the biggest mistakes I think the right ever made was saying, oh, all these kids are going to college. Once they graduate, they'll they'll wake up. They'll they'll oh, enter yeah. the real world. They'll wake I up. Believe, man. I believed that. Really? I believed that. Yeah. I was I, I I remember seeing this. Like, you know, the the student protests uh, that I saw on campus, I was like, oh man, like once they get out into the real world, once yeah. they get a job. They'll yeah, they'll play. learn. They'll 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 learn. Nope. <laughs> and then no, man. Then they entered the real world and they they bent it to their will. And it's sort of the, all you need really is 10% of a really outspoken population to change the world. And it's the study that I throw around a lot. All you need is 10% that is really outspoken, bends yeah. the entire yeah. society to their will. And one of the one of the aspects I think that is under discussed in sort of campus radicalization is, and you talk about this, you cite um, some professors who write about sort of like a moral like arms race between people. And I think the radicalization we're seeing on campus is also somewhat by the professors, but internally with the students where they will one up each other. Um, and, and so, oh, yeah. Some, yeah. Well, it's uh, so some of this research, um, uh, Justin Tosi and Brandon Warmke, I think I'm saying his name right. So they wrote a book called uh, Grandstanding, this idea of moral grandstanding, where basically like if you if you want to really signal your allegiance to a group, um, you know, you can sort of toe the party line and just say the thing that everyone agrees with. But if you really want them to accept you, if you really want to gain status in this group and show that you're truly committed, then you take it one step further. Right. So it's like, you know, oh, I, I think that uh, whatever this group should should be uh, included in this. And well, then the next step is, well, what about this group? What about the, you know, or whatever, like th these features of identity or sexuality or whatever, like you can just keep moving it forward right. um, to the point where like now uh, that, that becomes sort of the baseline uh, because everyone else tr struggles to keep up with it. And so everyone's sort of constantly on this, this sort of moral grandstanding uh, game uh, where everyone is trying to keep up just to just to sort of fit in. And this is how rapidly things can spiral. I mean, I, I made this point with luxury beliefs that like in the past, at least with with luxury goods and with like clothing and fashion and these kinds of things, the uh, the rate of change was constrained by the speed with which people can adopt a new look. And so, like, yeah. you know, if you have to wear this coat, you have to buy this coat, like there's sort of constraints built in there. But um, with beliefs, they can change overnight, like yeah. things that were unthinkable four years ago are like mainstream part of the conversation now. And you have to hold those beliefs now. Um, I think one other thing is, change. is a while ago, once you bought an expensive code, it didn't really hurt anyone. Maybe you can say there's some ethical concerns with the production, but you know, it didn't, it, it didn't hurt your surrounding society with these luxury beliefs. Not only do they really don't benefit you, they hurt everyone who takes it in. And so like it benefits you through status signaling, but the people who take it on board are people of lower status. And you write about how, you know, marriage rates have gone down around poor people when they've stayed relatively, relatively, they've gone down a little, but they've stayed relatively the same amongst rich people and celebrities are getting married to have children. And the people who bear the brunt of the cost, like you mentioned, are poor people. And I don't know if this is public information or not, but for a while, the NAACP was thinking about putting out a statement calling to like, was like anti-police to fund the police. And they did a poll and they found out their constituents, you know, 
um, like like the police and think it's important. It's like, well, because of course they do. Like real right. people who are not like on the like elites like grandstanding realize that the police are important. If you live in a rich district, in a rich place, you're in a gated community, you're fine. There's not a lot of crime, but people who are in these areas that are 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 down that are like struggling they realize the importance of the police yeah it's fascinating like uh that, that sort of activists who claim to speak on behalf of certain communities you find that very rarely do they actually sort of reflect the majority opinion of those communities right um you know i've seen it with like asian american activist groups for example claim to you know speak on behalf of the whole community but then you actually look at the survey results of that community it's completely different um, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of bewildering actually, like the way that they've managed to sort of like gain status by saying the opposite of what their community wants. Right. Like um, affirmative action. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a good example there or like, yeah, yeah. With uh, the sort of Asian American quotas, for example, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the activists are, are for it, but then like, if you, if you sort of pull like just broad, the broader community of Asian Americans who want their kids to get into a good school, like, of course they're not going to support that. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating to, to see to see how that all works out, and you know the, the grandstanding idea. I mean, psychologically, it's interesting. Like, what what other psychological traits are associated with it? Um, narcissism is like the strongest component of. of Would they fall under like dark triad of traits? Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's another sort of fascinating aspect of that too. But like, yeah, so so narcissism is one of the three um, facets of the dark triad, which is narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. And people with these traits tend to be sort of cold and callous, um, self-absorbed, uh, sort of exploitative and duplicitous. And you know, dark triad people who score highly on dark triad traits like that, they are more likely to grandstand. They're more likely to to signal victimhood mm-hmm. or sort of feign victimhood uh, in order to extract sympathy or other rewards. And I, you know, it's it's hard to say that. I think a lot of people, you know, they hear that and they think like, oh, well, this is going to discourage actual victims from talking about whatever you know, whatever pain they're going through, but. You know, whenever you sort of reward a certain kind of behavior, whatever it happens to be, yeah. uh, people with dark triad traits are going to exploit that and mimic uh, whatever that behavior is in order to to sort of gain gain uh, some kind of reward. Yeah, I want to move on to I think your and my favorite topic of discussion, which is Tinder and dating apps. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> sure. And so, yeah. um, I want to start off with like a really basic question, which is like, how do you think dating apps have changed? The, the dating scene? I mean, well, it's changed in my, well, just, okay. So from firsthand observation, I think it's changed a lot. So like I sort of came of age, like I think I was about your age, right when Tinder started taking off. Right. Um, and it completely, like it transformed, like it, it was, yeah, it's like night and day to where like in the past, like I, I'm old enough to remember even like these kind of jokes about like how it was creepy to meet someone on a dating website of like, right. oh, where did you meet? Like, oh, this, you know, match.com or whatever was like popular back then. And it was like this weird thing of like, oh, they met on the internet. And now it's the default. Yeah. Now it's creepy to meet in person, right? Like right. if you say like, how did you meet this person? Oh, we met on Tinder. Oh, okay, that's fine. How did you meet this person? Oh, we met at a coffee shop. Oh, is this, you know, have you looked him up online? Is he a creeper? Yeah. Is he, yeah, you know, like... And so, like now, it's uh, it's it's considered like like whatever weird to meet someone uh, in person. So that's why. And and then I think the other is we can actually 
sort of trace in, in terms of big data, you can trace sort of the, the decline in uh, frequency of sexual activity among young people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this was in the Washington Post semi-recently anyway, where they found that, you know, from 2008 to 2018, the number of young men who report not having sex within the past year has tripled. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was something like, you know, it, it jumped from like 10% to 30%. Uh, no sex in the last year among young men. And then for women, it was a slight, I think it was like 10% and it jumped to like 15%, something like that. So for women, it was a a smaller increase in in sexlessness for them. And I think a big part of this is, um, is dating apps basically are preventing uh, people from meeting up, from finding partners. Part of it, because it flattens what people are looking for. It's very much image driven on Tinder. Mm Uh, people care much more about looks, whereas in person you can sort of get a feel for another person's personality. More people have a chance of meeting someone in that way. Um, I think there's a lot of like uh, uh, what's called choice paralysis too, um, where basically yeah. the idea here from psychology is that when you give people five choices of something, uh, they're quicker to make a decision and they're more satisfied with that decision. Yeah. But if you give people 30 options for something, they take longer and they're more anxious and uncertain once they make the decision. And I think with dating apps is the same way where like you have a hundred matches in your phone and you never know like, oh, is this the person I should go out with? Well, maybe I should go out with this person. Right. Uh, when you're in a relationship. Uh, There's also a lot, of, you know? lot of, sorry, just a lot of interesting yeah. data on the more spouses you have, like the less, the more likely your marriage is to end in divorce. And so the- The, the more sexual partners you have. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so my, a lot of it is, yeah. is like how much of it is this pre distribution where like the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, which is like the top men are doing better and, and the bottom men are suffering. Yeah, it's it's sort of a, I've heard this term, uh, I think it was Michel Welbeck, he's a French author and a lot of other like sort of people have, have ran away with this idea of the sexual deregulation of the market or the deregulation of the sexual marketplace. Yeah. Um, right, where like, you know, it, it, it's sort of like in the past, uh, the romantic landscape it was like it was like communist right where like everyone has one partner no more nor less like this is your you know what what is it like the marx quote of like two each according (laughs) to his abilities from each part of their (laughs) days which is the best optimized system where where i think jeffrey joffrey miller jeffrey miller is Mm. psychologist talks about this on it was on uh, alex kashuta's pod and he sort of writes like there were three types of really i'm not like i'm butchering it it used to be that i think men used to have sex all like like let's say like Chimps used to only have sex for just to have a kid. And then all of a sudden we entered this phase where we had like monogamous relationships where, um, oh, so, so sorry. It used to be that like the top chimp um, mated with like the top uh, women and so had kids and the bottom chimps um, just didn't reproduce. And then we got to the point where like the best optimized system for social well being. Um, so there weren't any angry outcasts or people who were spiteful or resentful or whatever it may be. Um, they each found one spouse, one wife, they had a kid, reproduced, things are calm. And now we enter this, and there was a purpose for having sex, and I'm obviously paraphrasing what he said, and now we've entered this new stage where we're having sex not even to reproduce. And one guy gets like a bunch of girls and doesn't even reproduce with them. And so now we've returned back to the spiteful age where like the people at the bottom aren't having, like aren't having spouses. Um, yeah. And we've reverted back to that sort of like it's socially unhealthy. Yeah, there. I mean, there is this. I, I think you're right about the the Pareto distribution. I mean, there's some interesting research. Um, I can't remember who did this, but they basically found that among men, something like 
uh, 20% of the men are responsible for like 70% of the sexual partnerships or something uh-huh. like that, um, which is, you know, sort of in line with this, uh, this power law where like a small number of men are monopolizing sexual partners. That, right. that study was done like in 2012 or 13 or something. So I'm sure it's much worse now. Um, but I, you know, I've seen this in my, like, I have a friend who he's in a relationship now, but when he was active on Tinder, you know, he's a good looking guy. He knew how to like take the right photos and stuff. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know. He just like knew he was talented at that. There's an art. And there's he, an art. Yeah. Tweeting is an art form. That's true. Maybe dating and dating. Tinder photos. Dating, yeah. yeah. And, well, he got thousands, like thousands of matches to where wow. like Tinder actually contacted him and told him, you know, oh, like they lifted his radius restrictions and gave him like Tinder gold and all this stuff for free simply because right. if you're – especially for men, right? Like if you're a, a man who is popular on Tinder, Tinder wants you to stay using the mm-hmm. app. They want you to – they want to keep you on there. Because they derive um, value from the women on the app there and the women right. are there for the high status men. Right. And the men are there just, you know, for any woman. Right. And so like, yeah. So like, yeah. And so that was my, like my, my friend, that's not the experience of most guys. Most guys aren't getting thousands of matches on Tinder and like getting free upgrades. Right. Like the, most of my friends, most guys in general, they get like a few matches here and there and they trickle in. Uh, And so like that, that's like the sort of typical male experience. And then for women, the typical female experience on Tinder uh, seems to be much more like my friend where like it's actually reverse. So like if you look at the data um, in terms of who swipes right, who likes profiles, um, on average, uh, men like more than 60% of the profiles they see on Tinder. So mm-hmm. they're much more likely to swipe right. My God, that. no respect yeah. from these guys. <laughs> it's like no <laughs> respect for themselves. <laughs> well, you know, swiping doesn't necessarily mean, oh, anyway. So um, so the, the women- You, you disavow uh, my comments. Take a few seconds to disavow my- <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, so so for women, uh, it's four percent. So much more self-respecting, you know. Right. Well, women only swipe right for for it's very few. For women, the default is I don't like him, and unless you know, unless like there's a particular reason why they should swipe right, um, and so that alone sort of uh, creates this this situation where four percent of men on Tinder are getting the vast majority of the matches, right? right. Because those those are the four percent of the men who are sort of accumulating them. Uh, most of them. And, and for women, it's like, you know, they're sort of accumulating all of these matches too, because all these guys are swiping right on them. And I think this is also creating this toxic dynamic as well of like, yeah, just the ease with which it happens. I think it also facilitates uh, infidelity too. Mm-hmm. Like, like what, 50%, I mean, something like that, like are, are men are cheating on their spouses? Th- 30% of Sorry. the men on Tinder are married. Uh, and so, yeah, that's I mean, insane. If, you're, that's <laughs> insane. if you're out on a date with a man on Tinder, there's a 30% chance he's married. I mean, well, there's so much, there's so much ease to it. Like it used to be like you could only find other people to have, like to cheat on with like in your circle. And that mm-hmm. has like a lot of chance of blowback, but now you can meet someone randomly who is like far away removed from your social circles or their social circles or their social circles. And you will have a lot less like, like likelihood of it getting back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exactly right. Whereas on Tinder, you can uh, you can match with someone one town over mm-hmm. or in a different part of your city, and you'll never run into anyone you know. It'll never blow back on you. Right. I mean, there's also like class divisions on this too. I talked to um, I, I talked about this stuff with Jordan Peterson too. He was fascinated by uh, by all this dating app stuff. Um, about I think this was the this was in Pew um, where they asked. So it was just generally like, you know, what is your experience on dating apps? But then they broke it down by education level and they found that women who uh, 
their highest level of education is a high school diploma versus women who went to college and got mm-hmm. a college degree and ask them questions like, you know, how often have you been harassed by someone you met on Tinder? How often have you been uh, like physically attacked, abused, assaulted? Um, all of these like sort of negative experiences with the Tinder uh, dating apps. And I think it was just Tinder, but it might've been others. And basically they found that women who are less educated are much more likely to report all of these horrible things happening to them uh-huh. from when they met on dating apps. And a big part of that to me is like, basically, you know, you're, you're in different sort of dating pools where like, if you're an educated woman, you're probably living in a more uh, higher income neighborhood, more likely to match with more educated guys who are on average, like less likely to be abusive or toxic in some way. Mm-hmm. Not to say that there aren't those kind of guys who exist in those communities, right. but uh, if you're a less educated woman and you're uh, in a lower income area and you're meet, you're matching with all these kind of guys, you're gonna have a very different experience. The kind of guys, the dating pool that, that you're swimming in is much different if you're a sort of poor and educated woman versus if you're a, an affluent educated woman. And I think dating apps are also facilitating this kind of psychopathic negative behavior from men and and it's more pronounced uh in sort of less educated poor communities too um where these guys know they can just match and swipe and whatever like they don't have to care about these women i told this story you know circling back to luxury beliefs um a friend of mine is a a student at at, uh, top college he was telling me Mm -hmm. you know i um it's funny when i when i put my tinder radius to like one mile around the university uh, like so many of these girls on campus, you know, it's mostly the, the, the women he's, he was matching with, you know, their bios say they're like, pol- you know, poly or they're wow. open or casual or whatever, like, you know, just looking to have fun, all this stuff, like sort of very socially or sex- sexually open. And he said when he extended the radius to like, you know, five miles or 10 miles, basically to include the rest of the city, which is, you know, uh, the outskirts of the city are uh, sort of more lower income environment. Um, he said that the women he, he saw there, the profiles he was seeing, something like half of the women were single moms. Wow. Um, That's- and so that is sort of the contrast, right? Of like, if you're a 20 year old girl going to a top university, uh, sexual freedom means like being poly and having fun with different guys and no consequences. But if you're a 20 year old girl who didn't go to college, who is, is who, sort of in, who integrated these luxury beliefs, who took them in, right? Who, who said like, Oh, I guess sexual freedom is a good thing because that's what the elites told me, or that's what mm. pop culture and media. And that's what everything is, is pushing me toward. They're getting into these very toxic in, environments right. and relationships with, with guys who are not treating them very well. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a completely different experience for them. So like you were talking about like flatness where like it evens everyone out. And so status symbols and status markers are a lot more important. You've got like mi- milliseconds to, to show mm. you got your school, then you got your bio and then you got the photos. So it's like you have like like those status symbols are a lot more important than let's say they weren't in like previous life. Or they're a lot more quickly seen and then filtered out. And like how much of it is sort of like the education you have, how much does that lead to like your success? Or like if you were to tell some kid, like if you want a spouse, you want a good spouse, Go to college. Like, don't even go for the education. Like, go to a good school. Drop 300k, so you will find like a good wife. Ah, uh, right. Well, okay. So, so in terms of like, put like what what the value of education is on a dating app. Um, there was some research recently uh, showing that if you're a man with a ma- so so it, it, everything is exactly the same, but they basically created profiles of the same man. Right. One one uh, condition he had a bachelor's degree, the other he had a master's degree. Mm-hmm. If you have a master's degree, you're twice as likely 
Uh, you get twice as many matches, roughly. Wow. So this is why you're getting a PhD. <laughs> That's right. So I can get more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I wonder if you can, so if it's a master's, it's twice as much. PhD, maybe three times. I don't know. Wow. Um, I, that's actually not true. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> no, no, I know, I know. Um, I know. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, but that's sort of uh, the, the value of like these very quick heuristics people use of like, oh, if you have a degree, if you go to – I actually haven't seen – research on this about like what like the ranking of your school mm-hmm. but just as an anecdote um my roommate when i was an undergrad uh, she was a she was a grad student at yale um and i remember we were on the couch and she was swiping on her phone and she was like oh this guy's kind of cute i'm like i looked over and i'm like yeah what's wrong with him and she said um oh wait never mind he goes to this other you know he goes to this other school uh mm-hmm. not yale basically this right. lower ranking school nearby and uh, and I was like, really, like, you're not gonna you're not gonna match with this guy simply because he didn't go to the right school. And so I think like that's kind of sad too. That like you know, for better or worse, you know, whether it's appearance or but, but education, wait, wait. That's, all these that's, things. That's biologically inclined. Like that's how it is. Where women date across and up, men date across and down. Socioeconomic hierarchy. So like on average, right, yeah. right. So I don't necessarily I don't necessarily blame her. Um, I, don't, I don't blame her either, but I think this is a case where it's, it's definitely like, harmful. It's definitely like not a good that, like, Yeah. If if she had met this guy he as like uh, yeah, he was a good and she didn't know like she didn't know where he went to college. Like just sort of like liked the way he looked, liked his personality. They got along, and then they go out, and then later she learns like oh he's a he's a student at this school. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been a very different um, right. kind of situation. May have had a very different outcome than like oh all you know about this person is how they look and their education credentials and whatever. Yeah. Um, so so. Well, yeah, in a way, I, I don't. I get what you're saying, but I think that, like, in a way, it sort of uh, it, it it exaggerates or, or amplifies right. those sort yeah. of like not not always pleasant uh, impulses that humans have about sort of um, judging people based on on education or looks or whatever. Right, right. So it's definitely like not a not a good thing. I'm saying mm-hmm. more on a, on a general scale. Like I understand yeah. why it happens. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't blame her for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so the other thing is, I think we talked about this a little back and how vaccination status has now become a status symbol, and which <laughs> vaccine you get is now a status symbol. Where if like these firms are now spending millions of dollars for for marketing, um, like so, like Pfizer, there's Moderna, and so it goes like Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson, whatever order. I know Johnson Johnson's at the bottom, and so you'll see people put like their vaccination. Like I have a friend, he works at a Quanting. A quantum computing sort of like 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 sorry like a quantum trading firm mm. and so he put vaxxed in his bio and so like it helped him and i was like no way no. it did um i i we had talked about this a while ago about how frat boys intrinsically understand how the male female dynamic at a party will influence how people interact and extrapolate on a grander scheme i think you talk about this, how male female ratios at a college will determine what type of relationships happen. If it's more like flings or if it's more like long-term dating. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, so I, I wrote a long form essay about this in Quillette uh, with a co-author and um, uh, basically the finding here, and, and a lot of this is for, uh, drawn from uh, Datonomics, this book by uh, John Berger and uh, uh her name escapes me right now. But you're like, you're, Harvard, you're, Harvard, Harvard, Harvard the fact that you remember these people's names is just like, <laughs> bounce me here. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so, so but the, the research is, is, is interesting. I mean, the, the gender ratios, right? So basically, and this is not just on college campuses, this is in uh, uh, different kinds of society. So the research has been done across societies, across time, different cultures and so on. And basically the idea here is that, um, 
when there's a surplus of, of women, say, relative to men, so that men have more options, there's more women available to them, uh, women basically are more likely to adapt to male preferences and do things uh, to please men, basically, mm-hmm. because it's a, a situation in which men have more choice because there's more women than there are men. Right. And what this means is that on average, because men tend to prefer more casual relationships, less emotional intimacy, uh, basically what you get is more hookup culture. Yeah. And that's what you see, uh, for example, on college campuses. Uh, more and more campuses have more women than men. More women right. are going to college now. More women are graduating from college. Uh, in terms of, I think this is like for women or for people under 30 with a bachelor's degree, there's three women now for every two men. Yeah. Uh, essentially, like what this means is that there's yeah, uh, 33% more women with degrees. If you're an educated woman and you want an educated partner, um, basically the odds are stacked against you simply because right. fewer men are going to college now and graduating. Uh, and then the reverse scenario for the gender ratios is when there's more men than women, mm-hmm. men are more likely to adapt their behavior to women's preferences right. and women tend to like more emotional commitment, uh, longer term relationships and so on. And on on campuses, actually, where there there happens to be more men than women, so places like Caltech, mm-hmm. uh, for example, uh, there's like like certain like kinds of mathematics institutes and right. whatever around the U.S. where yeah. there's you know uh, an imbalance in terms of more men. Uh, there there are more long term relationships. Women report being happier and more satisfied, just generally more happier and more satisfied. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to have a boyfriend. Uh, and so basically it seems that like because more women are going to college now and the, and more and more campuses are becoming imbalanced, men are, you know, sort of be- behaving worse in a way. Like they're sort of, you know, like you're saying before, they're following their biological imperative right. or whatever to hook up a lot. But in terms of like, you know, in terms of like uh, satisfaction for women, in terms of relationships, long-term commitment, um, you're seeing fewer, fewer of those kinds of pairings. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing it too in, in places like New York City. Uh, the imbalance is, is insane. I can't remember the the numbers off the top of my head, but if you're a young, educated woman in New York, mm-hmm. like there's basically way more educated young women in New York than there are men. Whoa, and so, so if you're a young man, it's like it's way easier uh, to date, to find lots of partners, yeah. uh, to hook up. And it's it's sort of the reverse in, in other environments like Silicon Valley. Um, and so, yeah, ratio, like you were saying before, like uh, the, the sort of frat party scenario. Oh, right? Ratios, like, yeah. Got to get the ratio right. And, uh-huh. and of course, like, yeah, there's uh, there. this is something I think that's overlooked. You know, people say like, you know, what's going on with hookup culture? Why are people unhappy or whatever? And I think like a lot of this is just sort of down to, uh, you know, sort of biology and right. sort of the, the mismatch between what men and women want and how they behave in different kinds of environments. It's like we've taken, a, like we've mashed together third wave feminism, sex positivity, and now dating apps. And we, ha- we, we, we use this as like a claim that women would be happier off, um, kind of like equalizing the playing field between men and women. Um, but really, men are the one who are, who are benefiting the most from this new dynamic, especially men at the top. Right, and then yeah, what the results is like women are not able to escape this because they're told like they're not able to escape their own biologically driven sort of desire for a relationship and to have kids because like they're told like, hey, go be a girl boss go work, go, go to, go to college. Okay. Then get your master's degree, then go work at McKinsey. Okay. Sell your soul for these companies. Uh, just make more money, make more money, make more money. And then you'll still have time to start a family. And they've been kind of sold on this idea. It's like, well, listen, if you're spending all that time working, which is, you know, fine. Um, you know, if you want to work, if you want to, but what's going to happen is like, listen, guys and girls have different dating, um, 
like kind of directions. Um, if you're 30 and you're looking for a man who is like, you want someone who's, who's richer than you, who's doing better than you economically, who wants somebody who's better socioeconomically, then okay, well, you're 30 and now you've worked at the firm. And so that Prince Charming like really doesn't exist. It doesn't exist for everyone. It's not, it's not statistically possible in itself. And so then you might, okay, well, then you have to date down. Okay. Um, but then you'll be less happy. Um, and then also, uh, you'll get to this point where it's like a little tangent, but like most women want to stay home and work. And they're actually like resentful at their partners. If their partners don't make enough money that they can stay home. And so, okay. So like, let's say you're 30, you're working at McKinsey, you're doing great. You got vice president, you're doing great. Um, either you marry someone worse than you economically, you'll have to marry someone then younger, or you find someone who's like recently divorced, but with a kid. And so like, everything in life, like everything in life is like a cost benefit analysis. We do this with everything. Um, except with whether lockdowns work or don't work, whether we should do lockdowns <laughs> or that, then we don't do cost benefit analysis. But in, in general, like everything except like just in this one idea, uh, women have been told that they can have it all, which is just like not statistically possible. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I, the, one straightforward example of this was what I mentioned before, where like there's literally 33% more educated women than men. Uh, and what this means is that if you are an educated woman under 30 years old, uh, there's a one in three chance you're either not going to find a partner as educated as you or you're just not going to have a partner. Right. Right. Like that's sort of the reality. The cold hard reality of this is that because there are fewer men getting getting college degrees and uh, and earnings, I think like uh, for millennials now or something like this, like uh, people below us, like 34, I don't know what it is, but basically women are now out earning men. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like on the one hand, that's you know, a big deal. Like that is kind a of, big deal. Right. And yeah. And so, so basically like, okay, if you're a woman, you want a high paying job, but then you also want a high paying partner, but then there's not going to be exist. that many, it's right. Like, there's going to be fewer. Just and so it doesn't work out. And so, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be harder, right? It's going to be harder for, for young women to find a partner in that way. And, and yeah, in a way it's going to be harder for guys too. more and more guys seem to be dropping out. Um, of, of sort of dating and, and yeah. occup occupational striving and all that stuff too. It's really interesting to see this. Um, women don't seem as prone yet to, to dropping out in the way that guys, like a lot of guys are like weirdly okay with like just like playing the computer games, yeah. exiting, like playing World of Warcraft and just like completely saying like, screw it, I don't need to do anything. But like fewer women, I think women like, you know, they want to find a partner, they want to sort of have uh, have that kind of life. And it's uh, it's becoming, I think, harder uh, for them to, to attain it. It's really, it's sad, man. Um, yeah. and like, yeah, I don't know what the, like, is it getting more, more men into college? Is it sort of like, I don't know, trying to, trying to convince more women to be okay with marrying someone who's maybe not as educated or who doesn't earn as much as themselves? Like, is there any solution to this? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And so there's a lot of talk on the right on sort of like incentivizing financially starting a family. Well, I'll talk about mm -hmm. that, but like, I don't know the solution. This is just like, like you mentioned, like less people, less women going to college. Is mm -hmm. it reducing college systems as a whole? Like how do we gut academia to make it less important of like a sorting mechanism of a placing mechanism, or do we have men do better? And so mm -hmm. right now there's like, I don't, I don't remember where I read this, but like, there's like at this while there's like two, I think like male suicide clinics in like an entire state when there was like 200 like female suicide clinics, like something like that. And it's like these services for young men, I think part of the reason we somewhat bonded was we both are sort of like, we understand the plight of young men of what they're going through right now. Like 
the kind of like despair where you look around you, both like economically and socially, um, in the sense where like you're constantly getting mixed messages on what you should do as a guy. Like you should man up, but like talk like masculinity is toxic. And that's like, well, now you like you can't find a spouse. And it's like, well, now you don't even know the rules of engagement and finding a spouse. And so you just say, like, screw it, I'm gonna exit the system and play, you know, and just play video games um, because I'm not risking it. And then the other aspect of that is like, okay, well, this is now with the rise of OnlyFans. I think OnlyFans has provided an alternative and medium for men who have decided to exit the system, whether um, voluntarily or involuntarily from dating. And so what it does is once you pay for OnlyFans, it's a friend of mine, he's a YouTuber, he, he interviewed a bunch of people who pay for OnlyFans and then also like people who produce on OnlyFans, um, OnlyFans girls. And so what he found out is the guys who are paying, um, they treat it as sort of like a sunk cost in the sense where they're like, well, I'm paying 15 bucks for this um, for this girl who's essentially, they treat her as like my girlfriend. So why would I mm. spend time working on myself or asking that girl out, which might fail and I might get humiliated publicly. Like why even do that when I have something secure here? And so A, they spend money. Uh, B, they don't work on themselves. And it's just like a terrible situation. And what guys like, for example, like it takes a lot for someone to pay for something that's free. Like that is yeah. a serious friction that you have to overcome to pay for something that is porn is, is free. And so why are guys paying for that? And so for a while, it, it didn't make sense to me. And I watched this video and they're paying for the emotional connection. And yeah. so what, what it turns out is about like 66 to 70% of, of OnlyFans girls make their revenue through messaging. And so yeah. I think we intrinsically understand that from like the social psychology side where guys are paying for this emotional connection and girls, I jumped into like very randomly, like at 3 a.m. on Clubhouse, I, like, <laughs> I jumped into a room. It was that OnlyFan girls. They were talking about how to make more yeah. money. And what they said is like, yeah, I'll DM someone. It'll be like, send me a picture of you um, and cost five dollars to send a picture. And so they realized like, yeah, I make most of my money through messaging. And mm -hmm. some girls said that too. And it's like, well, you really got to lean into messaging. And it's this sort of like, like, uh, I forgot what it's called. It's like a par parasitic, parasocial relationship. Parasocial, that yeah. That has been developed. And, you know, OnlyFans blew up during the pandemic. People are inside, people aren't doing anything. <clears throat> um, yeah. And so that's why the rise of OnlyFans has begun. And I think it's more of a, a metric, really less about the women who are doing it, but it's more of a metric on the desperation of men and where they are in society. Yeah. Yeah, that is. I mean, it would be f fascinating, like if there was a way to collect like anonymous survey data, just like how many guys say from like 18 to mm -hmm. 29 or whatever are, you know, have ever had an OnlyFans or have ever paid for the services or whatever. Right. But that makes a lot of sense, man. I mean, like, you know, I think a lot of people have this sort of caricature in their mind of what young guys are like and like, oh, they just want to have sex and they just want you know, to watch porn or whatever. Like, that's all they care about. But no, like they're humans, too. Like they're mm -hmm. humans and they want connection and they want to feel right. like they're cared about and loved and all those things. And like I've seen like, you know, the, the, the like red articles about like the like high-end escorts and how like they talk about how sex is like a very small part of what they actually do. And so much of it is about like the, you know, the girlfriend experience of like yeah. taking care of these businessmen or whatever and like making them feel like they're emotionally attached and the, that kind of intimacy that they don't get, get at home or whatever mm -hmm. it is. 
Um, yeah, that's really, yeah. Like, yeah. What is that? Like, uh, I'm curious about what that experience is like from the point of view of the guys, like, do they believe that those girls care about them? Are they sort of participating in this fiction? Are they like, like what's going on, I guess, in their right, mind is like, right. do they, like, if you ask them point blank, like, do you think this girl cares about you? Would they They'd say yes or would they say, say no? Yeah. They, I mean, they would probably say, I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know. Yeah. I don't but know. then if they say no, then the, the natural follow up question is then what are you like? Why are you paying her? Why are you having these conversations? And right. is it like, you know, I know she doesn't care, but at least it's something like, mm-hmm. is that what it is? It's sort of like, I know that there's nothing here, but you know, it makes me feel less alone. And I mean, yeah, that would be yeah. sad if that was true, you know, like, yeah, or it just, might just... be in the hopes that one day she will be with you or like that's also a thing that was happening where, where people will DM someone like thinking one day they'll be able to date her. Oh, yeah. Which yeah, I think I is a smaller imagine. component. I think a lot of them know deep down inside it's never going to happen, but they like to sort of it's sort of uh, you like to shroud yourself um, with this fantasy that they, they do care about you. Um, and yeah. so it gets you through the day. Yeah. And the other question, there's very few people who like, it's very tough to get information about porn and the effects that porn a has on your brain and the effects porn has on relationships. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to talk to you about like the effects that porn has had on sort of the mental pathway, like the, the, the the neurons going in our brain and the pathways. Um, And also how that has gone on to affect young men and men in marriages, if you know anything about that. Yeah, I mean, so I wrote this this piece. I was on the Institute of Family Studies uh, website, and basically, like, I drew this parallel, this analogy with this other species. This was uh, in the 1980s, the Australian jewel beetle. Uh, these biologists found that basically um, – the species was like slowly dying out. Like the population was dwindling of these, mm-hmm. these beetles and they're wondering like, what's going on here. And what they found is that like Australian, uh, like, like tourists and passersby were throwing their beer bottles on the ground and the bottom of the beer bottles, um, had these ridges on them that resembled uh, female beetle genitalia. And so these male beetles would mount these, the bottom of these beer bottles, like, you know, basically it tricked their minds into thinking like, Oh, this is a, a willing partner or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, so the men's like the male beetle started doing like having sex with these bottles instead of other beetles or whatever. And so they can, this was contributing to their, their population decline. And so I, I wondered if, if porn is something similar with, with, uh, with guys, right. Where like they see these images on the screen and that becomes sort of more attractive or more alluring in some way than actually having sex or at least like less effort involved. And, and this could be like one reason why, um, sexlessness is on the rise, uh, especially for, for young men. Right. But then like in terms of, um, you know, there's research, uh, basically showing that the likelihood of, of divorce is increased, uh, with the number, like with the frequency of, of watching, uh, porn. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like the likelihood of forming relationships is smaller and basically like it has this kind of detrimental effect and, and the effect increases in magnitude the more porn you, you watch. And this is something also that like is, is, is not really discussed and, and it's often overlooked in discussions about like relationships and, and why it's not like, a, it's not like an easy topic to talk about. It's like kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. It's weird because like, I, I remember like, but it was like while, really taboo. It was, it was extremely taboo. 
Well, it was taboo for a while, and then it, it sort of went the other way, at least like among like young guys. I remember like late 2000s, you know, up until like, I don't know, 2012, say, of like, it was kind of like this fun joke where guys would say like, yeah, I'm watching porn, man. Like, it was right, kind of this yeah. cool, like you, you would brag about it. Like, yeah, I watch porn, so what? I love porn. And what I'm seeing now is like this, it's this backlash against Yeah, I had a friend it, in like, high school who would brag about how you would go off five times a day. And I said, listen, son, I don't think that's healthy. Uh, I'll cut this out. Let's Kevin, let's cut this out. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I, and, and so like, I think there is this, um, like the, this sort of, uh, this backlash now where like now people are, are sort of ashamed. And I, and I, it's interesting because I think the reason why guys would brag about it in the past is because they believed there was no effect. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, it doesn't affect me. So I can brag, I can make jokes about it, whatever. And now people are starting to realize like, Oh, I think something is going on here where this isn't like something's actually happening. There's this damaging effect. And now people aren't bragging about it anymore. Right. And right. there's this sort of shame associated. I almost think it's sort of like drugs where like, you know, if you think a drug doesn't do anything, you'll brag about using it. But once you re- like no one's going to brag about using heroin or something, right? Like once you know that it will affect you in a negative way, it'll damage you. Right. And people aren't going to broadcast that they engage in that anymore. Yeah. Um, I'm also seeing like, you know, it's not just guys too, right? Like I, I've seen um, interesting stats showing that like young women are using porn now, like on a, on a pretty regular basis. And like the numbers are rising for them too. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's uh, it's sort of like um, not just not just men who are who are sort of getting sucked into this. I got you. And yeah, man, it's it's uh, it's sort of a crazy situation here. And like, yeah, w- w- the solution here, like, w- what would it be? Like, if there's a yeah. way to, well, my <laughs> thing like, is, I it. I genuinely think we should we should ban porn in its entirety. Mm. Where, and like, I had a lot of libertarians and sort of people like. Well, that's infringing on our, our liberty. It's like, well, you're over 18. It's like, okay, um, there's a, like, in order to gamble online, you have to be 18. You have to show proof. And for the same reason, like, I would at least want the first step to be you need to be 18 or older to watch porn. Like, the average kid, the average like yeah. guy watches porn when he's 11. And so yeah. this isn't like sort of like vanilla, like like stuff like your parents. So like, this is insane stuff. Like this is actually off the walls, like insane, like, like, like violent. And so like that is people's first introduction to porn. And so yeah. that's not a good and thing. And being exposed to that at a young age, I mean, that is like a, a sort of form of, of trauma. I mean, Dr. Drew's talked about this too, about like how if young children are exposed to graphic sexual imagery at a young age like this can actually rewire their brain and sort of like uh, warp their understanding of what sex should look like and like we yeah, take I mean, every drug like every drug like heroin and we like it affects your brain it does yeah. and so we treat it as such but with porn for some reason we don't but we know that that does too right like the the sort of like the, the way that that activates the reward pathways in the brain and like yeah i mean like it's 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 intoxicating right like to especially for a young a young boy who's never seen any of that and now they're just sort of on the onset of puberty right like that is it's essentially a drug right like the brain produces it by itself it's not an external substance but like you can get hooked on that and it can create sort of sexual dysfunction sexual problems later yeah. I've read of studies, you know, about like uh, erectile dysfunction on the rise for young men and how like they're having difficulties. I I think I've heard about this from Dr. Drew too, about like how 
yeah, young guys, because they become sort of sensitized to like, they associate sex with like having a screen and all this stuff. And then like, mm-hmm. now they're actually with a woman. It's a different kind of experience for them and they right. aren't able to sort of perform. In, and in so a lot of times the solution to that is a lot of guys will take like Bluetooth or, or like rag or whatever, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And so the issue with that is once you take it, it becomes like a rectal dysfunction will get worse. Like it'll make you even more desensitized. So you're even more reliant on this thing and it gets worse and worse and worse. And like, I'll see like, like YouTubers with your very young demographics are like pushing out Bluetooth. And it's like, you're destroying, you're destroying your fan base's future. Like this isn't like, it's, it's, it's a bad thing to be pushing. I listen, some people are 80. Okay. It doesn't work anymore. I get it. But like, you're a young person. This is something. What are you calling it? Blue, 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 chew. blue, chew is like basically like a lot blue of YouTubers. Chew. It's like Viagra. It is, but it's, it's like marketed towards like younger people. It's like a different name. It's essentially like the generic version of it. Um, okay. And so like a lot of YouTubers will push it out be like, they'll be like, does your dick not work? They'll be like, does, does it not work anymore? Like try this. If you want right. to experience, like you want to be better in bed, try this and it that's it. so crazy to me because like a young man right like it sh- like it shouldn't be like there shouldn't be a whole market for that kind of stuff like targeted towards young men right but yeah i, I mean it makes sense right like over time you have this effect you know you sort of like have this behavioral response to something and it does affect in the long term and i think like yeah especially now with the, with the way technology is where like kids are getting smartphones when they're 10 and they can literally see anything i mean that's young guys right i can only imagine like what what that kind of experience does to young girls and like their their sort of perceptions of what sex should be based on sort of like these performers right like uh i remember years ago um read this article I think she was like, I mean, it's interesting the way that like feminism has, has changed over time, but this was like 2008, 2009, this, uh, this woman, she wrote this article about how, you know, porn is detrimental because the, the actors and actresses themselves are performing, they're imitating what sex should be, Mm -hmm. right? Like this isn't really sex. This is an imitation of sex. Right. And now people are imitating what they see in porn. So they're imitating an imitation and And now they're too two degrees removed from the actual act itself. Right. Uh, and so now people are like sort of play acting something that's not even real, right? Mm-hmm. So they're acting actors, they're, whatever actors are doing. And yeah. at the time, I think she was pilloried for for uh, for saying this, but I think today a lot of people would, would actually uh, agree with her. Like a lot of feminists, I think, with like sort of the, the new uh, generation. I, I just tweeted this article from from BuzzFeed about how like Gen Z women are critical of sex positivity or yes, something, and like yes. it was packed with this information, right? Like it was it was of course it always starts out with like maybe sex positivity was necessary as a backlash against those conservative. It's always like these norms. defensive phrases where it's like I I'm on your side. Why? Yeah, well, you're saying like maybe it was necessary against those norms, but maybe it's time to bring those norms back, but we're going to call it, you know, it's going to be under the guise of something else, right? Like as long as it's not associated with religiosity or conservatism or our grandparents, uh, as long as it's like, you know, we came up with it ourselves under the guise of like progressivism and feminism or something that makes it makes it okay. Even though the outcome (laughs) and the norms are roughly the same, right? I don't don't know if you saw this. Um, there was some TikTok of some girl saying, I forgot what bullshit word she came up with, but it was essentially like, I'm only attracted to people who I feel an emotional connection with. And it's oh. the same time with the same time, you've got like all like very, very far uh, lefties being like, I don't like having casual. It's like, essentially these people will like reason, like will like re- reactionary reason themselves towards like the stable family once again. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, it was fast. I mean, like, the, one of the quotes from that BuzzFeed article, this girl said, like, you know, uh, basically, she like, HBO did a number on me, social media, pop culture, all this stuff was pushing me to be okay with having casual sex with people I didn't know. Uh, and it took me a while to realize this wasn't good for me. And it's fascinating to me, right? We're like, now you have to like create a whole category because it's become the norm. I think Alex Koshutis talked about this too, about how like, you know, uh, in the past, the default for women was basically they don't want to have casual sex. And that was just widely understood that that was like, you know, normal yes. or that's just what they were like. And Douglas then, Murray has like, a great quote on this. Like the things yeah. we know that are true are told are false. And the things we know that are false are told are true. And that, that's what happened here, right? Because then like once with the rise of sex positivity or whatever it was, where now the default is like, of course you should be cool with casual sex. Of course you should want to have sex with strangers and you have to justify why you wouldn't want to do this. And now you create this whole category of demisexual or like right. create this whole thing about like, oh, I, I like to have sex with people I'm committed to as if this is some novel thing and that hasn't been the norm for like 4,000 years or whatever, right? Like now it has to be... Um, like this newfangled, oh, you know, oh, I came up with this new idea. Like, no, that's, that's been, what if I, what if I get married and then have like, children? Like, whoa, 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 yeah, yeah, whoa. Yeah. I know. That's uh, yeah. Like why would, yeah. As if like, you know, the, the, the behavior that, that we literally just invented 10 years ago is supposed to be the norm. And like the, the way people have always lived is somehow strange and you have to defend it. It's uh, yeah. Everything's kind of sort of upside down with, with sexual relations. Yeah. Well, I think this has been, Listen, man, I had a great two hours. Whenever I talk to you, it's always fascinating. Like you are by far. There is a reason whenever I do like my top five people on Twitter, I think you should follow. Like you are always up there because you your stuff is like there are two sub stacks that I think are like my favorite. It's yours and now Zach Slaybacks. But mm. um I'll check it out. thank you for coming on, man. This has been this has been wonderful. Yeah, Congrats yeah. Up. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Thanks, man.